Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning into Microscope, everything that's happening in environmental science straight from the next generation of scientists. This show would not be possible without our sponsors at Anchor FM. Anchor FM is a streaming platform that we use to upload all of our episodes and send them to leading streaming platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Radio Public. If you've been thinking about starting a show of your own but you don't know where to begin, check out Anchor FM today. You can join them on the web at anchor.fm. It's easy to use and it's free. This show is brought to you by Whatever You Say Productions, starting conversations since 2018. Well, welcome and welcome back <laughs> to the newest episode. <laughs> to the newest episode of Microscope. No, maybe we're on like Welcome back to Microscope to this unknown new episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um like we've switched to, Kevin and I both have super exciting papers we want to talk to you guys about. But because of the new media craze about the coronavirus from Wuhan, China, we figured we'd quickly just sort of give you our take on it. Mm-hmm. I think we're both in the mindset of like, oh, wow, a new virus that kills people. Okay. <laughs> it, it, like as as scientists that's how we feel as people we're like obviously that's terrible and obviously something right i'm not happy with a virus that yeah. kills people but it does happen yeah it's i the media's i don't know why they're so crazy about this one because yeah. it's not like there's new viruses all the time that kill people yeah, I, I don't... and there's old viruses that kill people. Yeah. Like influenza has killed, I believe I read, up to 6,000 people in the United States this flu season. Uh, I think it was some number like that. I could be making that Did up. you get your shot? I certainly did. Did you get it at Target? No, I got it at Walgreens. Ah, oh, but Target gives you a $5 gift card when you do oh, it. Oh. Yeah, so if you haven't done that yet, oh my god. If you're worried about coronavirus and you haven't got your flu shot... Take our word for it. From our perspective, that is ludicrous. Yeah. If you have the means to be vaccinated against any, you know, malady like this, uh, you should do that right away. And judging by, here's a funny um, side note on this story. Judging by the fact that, so there's a company I order lab supplies from called Integrated DNA Technology. And judging by the fact that on their homepage, when I went to go make an order this week, they had a special alert that said, if you need products that are relevant to coronavirus, please use this other website because there's so much traffic in response to just getting coronavirus diagnostic uh, supplies that they had to set up a whole new like server or something to take care of that. So judging by the fact that this company that makes basically nucleic acid products that are used for diagnostic and research applications. The fact that they had to set up a whole new server for the coronavirus demand that was put on their production line sounds to me like it won't be too far off that we will have a vaccination for this. Yeah. So when that comes out, please get that as soon as it becomes available to you. And if you haven't got your flu shot yet, that's absolutely been available to you for like six months now. So take care of that. Do it, yeah. Funny story about vaccinations. I recently got a checkup. I got a bunch of blood work done. And they tested me for like my hep B or hep C. Maybe hep A. I don't know. One of, yeah, the, one of the hep's. Yeah. One of those. And it they like check for antigen, which depends or which tells you. Antigen tells you if you're infected. Antibodies tell you if you're immunized. immunized. Yeah. 
and my antibody count was like through the roof. Like it was an abnormal antibody. So I am like super protected against hep letter that I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so Kevin, do you want me to go first? I'd like you to go first. You're right. Kevin has a big surprise later. It's not a surprise. It's not a surprise. It's a fun thing. It's super cool. So I can start. So the paper I chose was actually sort of specifically talked about the different types of cells in our eyes that monitor the amount of light and help regulate that circadian circadian rhythm. So it's called the functional diversity of human intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. Yeah, let's let's break that down. Okay, let's each one of those words mean. (laughs) So functional diversity, that just means that each of these cells carry out a different function in the body. So just like, okay, like a garbage truck. Boom. There we go. Yeah, use the city analogy. It's a great, it works super great. Right? So like the garbage truck is the eye and you have the driver, which does a specific function. You have the guy who watches out who does another (laughs) function. So each of these cells are all doing a different function on the same garbage truck or in this case, our eyes. And the, the function of these are all dependent on their different photosensitivity. And that depends on how much light they receive and how, like, the different wavelength of light they receive. And wavelength is just putting in terms of, like, the visible colors that we can see. Blue has a much shorter wavelength and red has a much longer wavelength. That's, that's correct. No, that's not. Oh, that is correct. Okay, correct. correct. Yeah. So... It kind of senses that. And then retinal ganglion cells, retinal being eye, ganglion is a type of nerve cell, and cell is a cell. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. (laughs) Perfect. Okay, so, and this came out by Ludwig Morell and his colleagues out of the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in La Jolla, California. La Jolla, California. Actually, I don't know that either. I don't think that's what it is. <laughs> out of California. So they're all like easygoing people. Like I said, these intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. I gotta come up with a different name for that because that's gonna get annoying to repeat. Basically photosensitive. I'll just do photosensitive cells. cells. Yeah, photosensitive eye Or eye cells. Yeah, eye cells. Eye cells. So these eye cells. Cells that sense light and then Take that sensation to your brain. To your brain, exactly. So they, you know, there's different subsets of these types of cells in your eyes. Some participate in image forming. um, So like actually forming images that you see. Other is non-image forming. So that's like brightness um, or darkness. And then others function with sensitivities to light. So like the ones that play a role in our circadian, circadian cycle and sort of modulate like when you go to bed, when you wake up, when you're alert, when you're trying to calm down, like all of California. <laughs> I do not mean to be attacked. Yeah, there's California. a special hue of light that just <laughs> radiates across the great state, the Golden State. So, for the longest time now, they we've only really known about different functional types of these eye cells in mice because they're really easy to study. We could just. For ethical reasons. For ethical reasons. (laughs) They're easier to study. It's easier to sacrifice a mice and look at its eyes. (laughs) But luckily, or not luckily, but like, thanks to the kindness of these people, they've donated their eyes to this study. Right? After they died. After they died. (laughs) Um, Actually, I don't know if they're dead or not. Because the cells must have been alive because of the way they examined it. 
Oh. Huh. Okay. Well, that'd be a very big this would be asterisk a... to look into. Huh. If you're if you're rough on money, you can donate your eyeball. Uh, probably I somewhere. That. I wouldn't do that. Okay, so they five people donated their eyes. Three females and two males donated their their eyes to these labs, and what they did is extracted the retinas from these cells. Okay, and essentially they put these different types of these retinas through varying photosensitive sort of assays mm-hmm. or like tests mm-hmm. to determine how active do these how active do these cells become when you shine a certain wavelength of light on it how long do you shine this light on it and how long does it stay active for after um, and they use various like protein assays they shined light on these eyeballs and measured how active they were using science <laughs> Um, and they, they looked at different things. So they looked at the wavelength that these, uh, wavelength or, or, uh, irradiance that these lights or these eyeballs would react to, how long the light needed to be shown on to react to. And they were basically able to break down the spatial correlation between these different types of cells and basically categorize them into three different types. Okay. And to give you some context, Mice cells have six different types of these photosensitive eye cells. Humans, as of right now, we only have three. Okay, so the we have type one cells, which are much more sensitive to light. So that means they became more active with small amounts of light being added onto them. Then you have type two, which were less sensitive. So you you needed to shine more light on them for them to become active. And then there were type three, um, which responded only to higher irradiances. So that's, I think that's kind of interesting. So it's like, we have stuff that's like, ah, light, oh my God. And then you have stuff that's like, is that light? Okay, yeah, it is light. And then you have stuff that's like, I only like this type of light. Yeah, things that are like an on-off switch, things that are um, more of a gradient, uh, gradiential sensation, Mm -hmm. and things that are very specific to certain colors. And... So it's interesting because these ones that are only that only responded to these higher irradiates irradiances. Am I saying that word? Yeah, right? no, that's correct. Okay, irradiances. Yeah. Okay, all right. So what they found is that these type three that respond only to higher irradiances are much more abundant than type one and type two. Specifically, there's thirty point nine cells per every millimeter squared. That is precise. Give them so much credit. Yeah, I guess it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Do we know how big your lens is? Like the average lens? Ooh, that'd be a good thing to... Yeah, and then you could calculate how many cells total are in the the retina. I'm not looking that up currently as we speak. Okay, so it's... Millimeter. It's about a thousand square millimeters. Yeah. Every person's... Okay, so about 33,000 cells. Is that what it was? So it's a high proportion. It's more than type 1 and type 2. (laughs) So although there were less of type 1 and type 2, so they called it a discharge rate, but one thing they measured is how long of, or how long and how quickly they would release signals. Type 1, type 2, and type 3 all interact with different types of cells. Mm -hmm. So like... 
to get back to our garbage truck. <laughs> the driver has a boss, the people who watch have a boss, and the people who collect the garbage have a boss. But then I don't know what I'm talking I think here in Arizona, they've eliminated garbage men. Because now it's all like... Yeah, the robots. The robots. Yeah. I mean, the guy still drives the truck. There is still a guy. Yeah, there's still a guy driving a truck. Um, Right. So these, they found these three different types. They all could be split up in, you know, varying degrees. But the really interesting thing and what I really wanted to focus on for this study is that each of them are going to play a different role in their ability to take this light information and transfer it to our brain. And each are going to play a different role in how our brain interprets that. And this all links back to sort of like me being an insomniac. So this is good. This is good information for everyone who suffers from various eye diseases and like insomnia like myself. Because now that we have a better understanding of the different types of cells that process information in your eyes, we can better predict how different levels of light and what types of light light will actually be registered by your brain and by Mm -hmm. your body. And thus drugs or like behavior can be changed in that sense. Am I going to change watching Netflix with my screen a foot away from my face before I go to bed? No, not at all. (laughs) Now, here's the thing with that. And I believe this uh, study has some corollary to other um, things I've read about this. There's actually uh, programs you can install on your computer. Let me look at the one I am using. It's called f.lux, f.lux. And it will actually tint the screen to reduce the incidence of blue light or short wavelength light, like Mike just talked about. I have a big issue with that. With that that tinting? Why? Not the tinting, but if you look at the studies that were done about blue light affecting that, they were shining light at a rat, like nonstop. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's gonna keep me up regardless. Yeah, which is regardless of keeps you. me up. But I yeah. don't. I don't think it has. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I can't. Studies could have been better. Um, I'm not sure. I have a subjective opinion about it yet. I kind of just started using it offhand because I've been trying to work later and later into the night again. Um attributing uh contributing to the insomnia state but yeah if you want to try that out that's one of the things that is on the table now as being a uh, a potential solution to this issue of having too much light so mike you couldn't have possibly picked a better segue into my paper so just as mike told us all about how the different cell types of our eyes are reactive to different types of light or different um amounts of light or time durations that we're experiencing light of different colors i'd like to bring it back a minute ask more fundamental question what what exactly is light what is light made of it's it allows us to see everything we know that what we see is just the light bouncing off of objects and interacting with the cells in our eyes but what exactly is it and this is something that scientists and philosophers had debated for hundreds if not thousands of years um prior this is something we debate like this it's is still open yeah it's because it's i i remember like physics 101 in high school there was just like light 
It's a particle. It's a wave. Mm-hmm. We don't really know. This is where we're getting. It's okay, that sorry. fuzzy distinction between being a particle versus being a wave. So let's first uh, think of some examples of things that are clearly particles. You could call... For, Marbles. Yes. For convenience, a marble or like a, um, a pool ball going through the pool table. So because that's just it's just one thing that's flying around by itself and will interact with other things. And then an example of a wave, we think of waves in the ocean. They um, have crusts and troughs and they flow into each other. Some of them add to each other. Some of them detract from each other depending on the um, phase in which the waves are in. So there's an example of at, at the macroscopic scale, what's a particle and what's a wave. So for a long time, there was lots of guys who argued that light was a particle. We are seeing um, these little packets of light they called photons or a particle of light, like a photo particle. And then still others were like, oh, maybe it's a wave. And they weren't super sure until this dude by the name of Young did this super simple experiment wherein he shone a ray of light through a tiny slit and you could see that there was just one um, ray of light that came out on the other side. However, if you did two slits, you would not just see two rays of light on the other side, but an intricate interference pattern um, suggesting that light, even if it did have particle-like attributes, it also had wave-like like attributes. This? Yes. Yeah. And we will put this double slit interference pattern as the image for today's podcast so you can kind of get a visual uh conception of so what pretty. i'm talking about here it's it so is pretty. really pretty yeah. yeah so that was one of the first instances where we saw this duality of something could behave as a particle in some circumstances and as a wave in other circumstances um in this case it was light then the homeboy Ernst Rutherford did the similar experiment, except instead of using a beam of light, he used a beam of electrons. Now, a very important distinction between photons and electrons is that photons have no mass. They are just packets of light, pure energy. However, electrons, while uh, very small mass, they do have mass. And so what we would expect if electrons behaved just as particles would be we wouldn't see that wave interference pattern we would just see two straight um lines on the other side one some of them going over here some of them going exactly there. some if of them were, hitting that wall precisely if there are only two um uh streams of particles coming through through the two slits we just see that however what he saw was the same kind of interference pattern that young saw with photons very interesting because then that opened up the whole can of worms of the idea in quantum physics of wave particle duality for massive particles, um, particles that have mass. And these are the things that make up atoms. And as we know, atoms are the things that make up molecules. And as we know, molecules are the things that make up cells and cells make up us. And then the rest of the universe is made of these massive particles that we can see have both um, particle and waveform properties. So now over the past probably 100, 120 years, um, people have been just pushing the envelope here. How massive of particles... Pushing the envelope. Yeah. <laughs> how massive can we make these particles and still see that double slit experiment um, style uh, wave interference pattern 
on the other side of the double slit. And so I think when I looked up this paper that I'm going to tell you about now, I had looked up the one previous to it. Um, the one previous to it had used molecules of the size. Now we're talking about molecules. So that's, again, electrons make up atoms or a component of atoms and then they had recapitulated the same results with hydrogen atoms the smallest atoms you can use easy enough um, then they did slightly larger molecules of about um, I believe it was like 10 to 50 Daltons do we know what molecules they were um, organic molecules of okay. some kind so organic molecules are composed of carbon and I want to draw the uh, attention to the term Dalton uh, this is named after a dude. I'm really glad we stopped doing this bullshit where people, if you discover something, you get to just use your fucking last name to refer oh, to it. Because that, right. gets, yeah, that gets confusing. Too. I don't want to name any of that. Yeah, he doesn't want to have oh. um, Archaeobacteria pavius. <laughs> <laughs> Something. Nano Archaeotum pavius. Yeah. <laughs> One of these days. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. For those things, I get it. For a single species of archaea, which is really recalcitrant, in the, in, you'd have to be looking for it to need to deal with it. Fine. Fine, Mike. You can name that shit after yourself. Yes. But for something yes. so fundamental where we're going to use it as a unit of measurement for molecules, like, fuck you, Dalton. So yeah, that's what John Dalton ended up doing. He was the one who figured out what is the mass of a single proton and just called that to be one Dalton. Therefore, when we talk of a molecule that is one Dalton in size, it's just an atom of hydrogen and uh, a molecule that could be 100 Daltons in size, could be any number of different molecules um, composed of different elements. For instance, carbon, let's say we had a molecule that was just carbon. Carbon has six protons and generally six neutrons each, so that'd be a single atom of normal as carbon would be 12 Daltons. I, I also thought Daltons had to do with how it separates when you spin it down, like when you ultracentrifuge. Great fucking point. So here's an idea about, uh, the idea of isotopes is that Isotopes are the same element, however, they have different numbers of neutrons. So the way we delineate elements, when you see it on the periodic table, each element, what makes an element an element is it has a given number of protons. Now, generally, it has an equal number of neutrons. However, there can be some forms of an element that have more neutrons than protons, and those are isotopes. Now, what Mike is referring to is the idea of isotopic fractionation by ultracentrifugation. So basically, we have this machine in the laboratory called a centrifuge, and you put your sample in it, and it spins it around super, super fast and pushes basically all of it. And basically, what that is doing is mimicking what if gravity was a thousand times stronger than it is on Earth as we experience now. We just do that by... Um, spinning it around and it experiences the centrifugal force now if you can make that centrifugal force sufficiently intense and extreme you can actually separate these different isotopes because they have different masses so something um, composed of carbon 12 will not um, be pushed down as hard as something composed of carbon 13 and this is the idea behind because it's just heavier right yeah. it's heavier um and we use the 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 unit of mass we use for that is daltons and that's all we're trying to get at here is that 
um, in the beginning when they tried to recapitulate these double slit experiments with massive particles, they were doing things on the order of one to five Daltons, then it moved to like 100 to 200 Daltons, a little bit bigger molecules. Just last year now, they did it with compounds composed of 25,000 Daltons. Now, what's important about that size range roughly of molecules is we're now approaching the size range of biomolecules. So when you think of proteins, DNA, all the molecules that make up the working components of the cell, that's the order of magnitude that they are um, in mass, around 25,000 to upwards of 250,000 Daltons in mass. And so the, the paper I was looking at this week basically did the same double slit experiment. <laughs> Sorry, and, I cough. No, you're good. Did the same <laughs> double slit experiment with uh, compounds of 25,000 Daltons, and they saw exactly the same thing. They saw this quantum, what's called quantum superposition when you're applying it to massive particles rather than photons, or I guess the same thing with photons, but these extremely, relatively extremely massive particles also show the same interference pattern in the double slit experiment, even when they're the size of some small proteins. That's an intense thing to think about. Yeah. Because that means that at a certain size level, almost, things behave in a quantum in sense. In a quantum state, yeah. Exactly. That's, yeah, that's what they're really showing. And for me, I don't know how naive my view of this is. This brings into the, the mainstream, into the picture, the, the possibility of what some call quantum biology. And basically that's these quantum um, attributes of molecules at, at this scale may play a role in some biological processes. This has been barely looked at whatsoever. We pretty much treat uh, biomolecules in a classical sense that was before quantum physics was all figured out. Um, a particle was a particle, a wave was a wave. There wasn't this wave-particle duality which opened up the door for the, the idea of superposition wherein two particles can be at the same place at the same time, which makes absolutely fucking no sense to our macroscopic brain and is absolutely insane. However, this may be something that's contributing to our <coughs> biology at a molecular scale well, and who knows how large. I, you know, I think about this finding something in the same place at the same time. Is that just our ability to measure? And is it not just like, it just moves really fast. And so it's not in the same place at the same time. We just are only capable of measuring it. Uh, you know, it's like- From every quantum physicist I've heard from, that was also their first concern. Yeah. And from my understanding of the scientific consensus in that, it is not the case that we are just not good enough at measuring it. No, 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 no. Just like... Because if they're commented well, you don't necessarily have to trust the process. Well, you can just read and understand the process. That's well, a different sometimes, thing. Sometimes like, things take a really long time and you're like, oh my God, is it working? Is, is it doing anything? Yeah. Just... Trust that it just oh, is at that point, wrong. unless it's caught in an infinite loop, which I've had happen a, a few times where I've let something run over the weekend. I broke the, my computer once. You broke your that. computer. Well, I didn't doing break an infinite, infinite loop. Yeah, 
We'll, we can talk about infinite loops in, in computer science. And Let's talk about loops. infinity next time. All right, fuck yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we fuck. can do that. We're going to get more metaphysical next episode. <laughs> episode number that yeah. we don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to start the metaphysics right now, what is quanti- quantitation? Anyway, if you don't believe all this shit about quantum superposition and things being in two places at one time and all this double slit interference patterns... All right, so here's what you got to do. In order to recapitulate this um, interference pattern that we've shown in the uh, image for today's podcast, all you need is three things. You got to have a laser pointer is the most difficult thing of these to come by. Laser pointer. Have a small piece of copper wire. It doesn't have to be copper. It can be any kind of wire. Just a wire that's sufficiently thin like that. And then some electrical tape. What you're going to do is take the wire and over the pinhole of the laser pointer, just position the wire such that it's kind of um, cutting it in half, and then just use the electrical tape to hold that in place. We're going to put a link to a YouTube video that shows this a lot better than I can explain it verbally. And what you want to do is just make sure that wire is right in the middle of the laser pointer and tape it in place um, such that there's... On either side of the wire, there's a very thin portion where uh, of space where the laser can still shine through. Now, what you'll want to compare is, before you do all this, just shine the laser pointer in a dark room on the wall and look at how the laser looks on the, on the wall. It should be a single point of light with a little bit of bleed on either side. Now, when you put this wire in the middle of it, Instead of just seeing two little points of laser light, you will now see the same wave interference pattern um, that we have uh, shown in that figure. So if you don't believe this, you can do it at home. That's do it crazy. At home. Do it yeah. at home. Here, I, we usually try to give you a take-home something you can do to apply things. Now we're giving you a take-home experiment. You uh, until next time. Yeah. Can do that? Thanks for tuning in. And we'll be around. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Microscope, brought to you by WISP. To learn more, join us on the web at wispmedia.com slash microscope, M-I-K-R-O-S-C-O-P-E. We'll see you next time.